1: Today is Tuesday, February the 1st, 2005. It is good, good, good to be alive. Spring has sprung the 1st of February in Berkeley. You know, it's amazing. This beatific town is painted pink with plum blossoms overnight. It's what the Japanese call the spring appearance. For them, it's mostly cherry blossoms. It's so sudden, and then it gone so soon. You know, we have to kiss the joy as it flies. William Blake used to say that. Uh, he was such an 18th century hippie, a nudist fella, a mystic miracle of a man, but a hands-on printer. Never ink-stained, though, never an ink-stained wretch. Catherine Blake, his wife, said of him, Mr. Blake... He don't stain. Uh, She also said that she had very little of Mr. Blake's company, for he was always in heaven, you know, with the angels. (laughs) As the poet Rimbaud writes, be always drunken, be drunken with wine, with poetry, or, or with virtue, as you please, but be always drunken, yes. I can just get high on the air out there, uh. I think of joy as a sacred obligation. It's an obligation to those uh, who are dead. Do not give way ever to despair. That's the last temptation, you know. Even Christ was tempted to despair. It's our job to stay in the dance, damn it. Especially when the air is like wine and the earth is forgiving us one more time. Oh, the flowers out there are so wild. They're running away across the hills, and there's green everywhere and gold and I feel like the old sage, what was that funny old sage dancing in the woods, making love to trees. <laughs> anyway, I've decided no more venting this year, no more quetching. Of course, <laughs> I can't I can't stick to that. One morning, I was sitting on my back balcony last week and I watched a homeless man pulling four shopping carts down the middle of the road. They were piled high with his belongings and covered with blue plastic. I looked away with this groan of compassion fatigue and then I noticed he was doing a little dance step, singing to himself. Suddenly, I felt jealous, uh, I mean, he seemed to be having a nice day. He looked up and waved, and I waved back. Perhaps he felt sorry for me, sitting all alone there on a bright sunny day with no company except my cat. My cat's name is Felony. She walked to the edge of the balcony to check him out, and she decided not to invite him up. Better to listen to the wind in the trees and soak up the solitude. Felony's getting old like me. I envy her. I envy her cat's concern. We're both fond of people, but most of the time we prefer the thought and the memory of others. You know, it's like traveling, taking a journey. It's so much trouble to go anywhere, but then it's so nice to reflect on all your adventures later, and so too, uh, you know, uh, it's difficult, it's work. To have a family and be in love and cultivate friendships and do all those things. Uh, But the thoughts and the memories then are your food uh, later in life. Food for thought, especially for those of us who would rather think than act. I suppose it's a lazy life. But in this world where too many people act without thinking, well, I suppose you could do worse. Anyway, I put a branch of Pink, pink plum blossoms on my desk as homage to the spring, and then I pulled the TV set out onto my balcony so I could watch C SPAN. Yes, the hounds of spring may be on winter's traces, but electronic media never has a season on TV. War is the weather, climate is catastrophe. These guys, they call it entertainment. I watched some of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. All VIPs. I watched Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Tony Blair. My favorite Irishman, Bono, president of Nigeria. Obasanjo is his name, I think. He was in full ethnic regalia, quite gorgeous. He's also chairman of the African Union. He spoke about the brain drain, Nigerian doctors opting for life in the U.S., President of South Africa, Tambo Mbeki was there. He explained debt cancellation and capital flow. There was a woman, one woman on that panel, the Swiss moderator, uh, organizing things. I thought, how oh, it is that so many good people, even VIPs, uh, try so hard to do the right thing. Bono said that He's going to devote the rest of his life to this work, the uh, the work he does for uh, data. Uh, that's debt cancellation, uh, Africa, AIDS. All the good stuff, you know. He says it's not a cause, it's an emergency. All the usual suspects raising all the usual issues, talking and talking. Should we have an international tax? Should we have systems building, etc. Bill Clinton said, Well, of course it's peanuts, it costs peanuts to save millions, it's cheap. While Bush wants another eighty billion for another year of war. Now all this is so well known to so many that I've gotten a little impatient with it all. I like Sharon Stone, she's the one who stood up at some point uh said she'd give $10,000 and all the others are asked to pledge right there. Just do it. Just cough up the money. Show me the money, is what she was basically saying, and she got some action. Bill Gates can't do it all, folks. Doing his best. Sharon Stone made me think of the first time I did a pledge drive here on KPFA. I used... Her technique, yes. I pulled out my uh, wallet, my coin purse. And for radio, I let the change rattle onto the table here. And uh, I used the uh, those dollars, those big Susan B. Anthony dollars. <laughs> that was back when membership in KPFA was $25. And I said, let's get it up for KPFA. Here's my money, where's yours? Now, next week, next Tuesday... We'll be starting another uh, pledge drive. It's $60 these days for basic membership. And once again, we'll ask you to subscribe. Uh, I'll be on three Tuesdays demanding cash. Yes, demanding your funds. Uh, I won't be on Thursday mornings because they have a different plan for uh, the morning show. But... uh, I'll be on again there after the marathon, but uh, during the uh, three half hours, I will be asking you to subscribe. I have premiums. One of them is Will in the World or How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. I'll be offering that one next Tuesday. Uh, it's Stephen Greenblatt's biography of Bill Shakespeare, and there's a lot of material here that I've used, I think last week I used it, it's the background on the Merchant of Venice. There was a, a trial uh, during Shakespeare's time. Uh, he saw a fellow hanged, a fellow who was accused of being a Jew, and there's all kinds of tie-ins. The fellow was suspected of having tried to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I. Very interesting background material. That movie has just come to the screen with Al Pacino, as Shylock the Jew, and Jeremy Irons as the title character, Antonio the Merchant. uh, Highly recommended. I loved it. It was funereal, funereal, but uh, I think it just might be art. I could be wrong. If you think so, write me a note and tell me so. (laughs) And all three Tuesdays, I'm going to throw in the mix uh, one book of my own this year, I might try that and see if people are interested. I will combine it with a tape uh, reading from that same book and see if that's appealing to uh, KPFA listeners. That book is over by the caves. It's an old collection of short fictions and some of the stories in there uh, make nice CDs. But I'll explain all that next Tuesday at 3.30. And, yes, uh, that book and um, my um, second book, Mind Over Media, are available on Amazon.com if you're interested and at Cody's Books here in Berkeley. Uh, or you can write to me here at KPFA for lists of books and tapes and all that good stuff. I do not have email, folks. Uh, I've become a closet introvert. I've decided to come out and go in. But I do so love your letters and the emails you send me here at the station. If I have neglected to write you, it is, um, well, it's a shame, and I will try to get around to uh, everyone here. I have a note here. What is it? (laughs) One note ups me today. Uh, Someone was upset because we broadcast the uh, execution at San Quentin, and I just want to say that that's... uh, not a decision I make. That's the news department folks. Uh, What I need are the letters in which you try to straighten me out. How else would I learn? Uh, I had a recent listener who was very cross with me something about Socrates and of course uh, the references to Socrates were in the letter from Martin Luther King. It's called Letter from Birmingham Jail in which he used Socrates as a great example of the ways in which we resist unjust laws, Socrates, of course, obeyed the law and drank the uh hemlock but um he uh did resist what he thought was um what you call that uh well he he practiced free speech and didn't like it, <laughs> but it's complicated um the letter from Birmingham jail is simply uh uh, a long treatise on how to ethically and morally oppose unjust laws, uh, civil disobedience, you know, the sort of thing. But uh, KPFA listeners always catch me in all of my errors, straighten me out, especially the wordsmiths out there. You are so erudite. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. I had one letter, just one, asking me how I felt about this Social Security scam coming out of Washington, D.C. I'm one of those elders who's surviving on a Social Security check. I have the great fortune to have HUD housing, so I can never complain. But with regard to this Social Security thing, I do want to refer you to something that I found delightfully funny. Uh, it's called Unsocial Insecurity. It's in the comment section of the talk of the town in the New Yorker, January 24th and 31st. Now, uh, when I read it, I copied it to send to some of my dear, dear acquaintances. I am shocked, shocked when some of my acquaintances tell me that they, well, they're buying into this bourgeois about Social Security going broke. It's a scam, folks. He's putting us on. I don't know. It just seems that... uh, but it it 's intuitive for most people they they just uh, you know uh, since California's going broke for real, I think they assume that the social security situation must be just as bad uh, anyway my favorite favorite New Yorker commentator, Henry Herzberg, writes under unsocial insecurity in the talk of the town. He writes that the administration's campaign to do something about or to social security will get a primetime launch in the State of the Union extravaganza, but Bush is already busy softening up the battlefield. And, uh, the first question, let's see, he was, he was doing an interview for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Hertzberg calls the Wall Street Journal the parish bulletin of the non-evangelical wing of Bush's political base. Anyway, their first question to Bush was about his agenda for Social Security. They asked whether he would just be laying out general principles and leaving the details to Congress. And Bush said, um, no, not necessarily so. And then he said this. This is a quote. Now, I'm telling you this is really you know an absolute uh, transcription of what our President said. See if you can uh, follow this. Bush said quote, uh, that's part of that's part of the advice my new National economic Council head will be giving me as to whether or not we need to here is the plan or here is an idea for a plan, or why don't you just fix it? I suspect, given my nature, I'll want to be, uh, the White House will be very much involved with, I have an obligation to lead on this issue. I think this will be an administrative-driven idea to take it on. And therefore, that that be the case... I have the responsibility to provide the political cover necessary for members. I have the responsibility to make the case if there is a problem. And I have the responsibility to lay out potential solutions. Now, to the specificity of which we'll find out, you'll find out with time. That's the end of the quote. From the President of these United States. Um, hmm, I wonder. I wonder how we can diagnose that, you know. Uh, anyway, Harrodsburg goes on to say even a professional actuary might have trouble parsing that one. The initial thrust of the Bush approach, as laid out in his own. Comments in speeches and memos by various assistants uh, is clear enough. He's got two big themes. First, Social Security is in crisis, running out of money, about to go bankrupt unless something drastic is done. Second, privatization, eliminating part of Social Security and replacing it with a system of individual private investment accounts financed from a portion of workers' payroll taxes. That, he says, is somehow the key to avoiding the catastrophe, and it's also a fine thing in its own right. Mm -hmm. About a month, more than a month ago, Bush proclaimed at an economic summit, this is one of my charges, is to explain to Congress as clearly as I can the crisis is now. Oop, he does, he does indeed have some explaining to do, Herzberg goes on to say, this year the Social Security system, the payroll tax, which brings the money in, and the pension program, which sends the money out, will bring in about $180 billion more than it sends out. It will go on bringing in more than it sends out until 2028, at which point it will begin to draw on the $3.5 trillion surplus it will by then have accumulated. The surplus runs out in 2042, right around the time George W. Bush turns 96. After that, even if nothing has changed, the system's income will continue to cover 73% of its outgo. And that's using the Social Security Administration's economic and demographic assumptions, which are habitually pessimistic. Using the assumptions of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the surplus runs out in 2052. And if one uses the economic growth assumptions that Bush's own budget office uses, when it calculates the effects of his own tax cuts, then the surplus runs out in. uh. maybe never. The crisis, therefore, is not now. It's as bogus as the Alliance for Worker Retirement Security, which in reality is a fake grassroots front, an astroturf front for the National Association of Manufacturers. There is no social security crisis, and there is not likely to be one. Hertzberg goes on and on with some more details about, you know, some tweaking and things that could uh, you know, uh make the thing go on forever. Um you know, um little things like, you know, we could raise the retirement age a year or two and then uh uh let's see, we could uh Oh the payroll tax, yes, it cuts out at ninety thousand. So we could add a bit of progressivity to the tax benefits, right. One can even imagine a national decision, he says, to devote a larger proportion of national resources to the care of the old, given that a larger proportion of the population will be old, preferably to be paid by taxing something we'd like to see less of, like fossil fuel consumption, you know, instead of something we'd like to see more of, like jobs, yes. Ah. Hertzberg does like to go on about the way we're taxing work, not wealth. That's so hard for some people to grasp, anyway. Oh, uh, let's see. Social security, yes. The crisis looks suspiciously like the social security equivalent of WMDs. The cynical, he writes, the cynical, or maybe just the political interpretation of rush to privatization, is that private accounts would create Republicans. People uh, will have to start thinking like investors. They won't actually be investors, not in any meaningful sense. They'll still just be workers for hire. But come election time, they'll take their cue from the Dow, not from wage scales or income ga- gaps or the unemployment rate. <laughs> Now he comes to the really cynical explanation. That would be mine. That's, I've written here, moi. This is what I believe. It's the really cynical explanation is that privatization is a nice, clean way to transfer gigantic sums to Wall Street brokerage houses. You got it? I call it brigandage. Uh, Theft. Putting their hands in our pockets. Actually, you know, they've already... uh, Uh, ...skimmed, uh, taken a lot of money from the Social Security pot. Uh, No lockbox, no lockbox. Gore was right about that. Um, They uh, robbed us blind already. A third explanation, according to Hertzberg... ...is that the true impetus to privatization is ideological. Now, to say that is not to say how awful. It's actually a compliment... Ideology is less depraved than crude (laughs) self-interest. Even when it gets you to the same place. One person's ideology is another person's values. The values behind social security privatization are not terrible. It is good to save. It is good to be self-reliant. It is good to plan ahead. It is good to be the little pig who builds his house of brick rather than straw. But it's not as if these values were not being taught in hundreds of other ways in our lives, and there are other values, too. Values suggested by the words social and security. Yes, self-reliance is good, but solidarity is good, too. Looking after yourself is good but making a firm social decision to banish indigence among the old is also good. Market discipline is good, but it is also good for there to be places where the tyranny of winning and losing does not dominate. Places where the tyranny of winning and losing does not dominate. Individual choice is good, but making the well-being of the old dependent on the luck or skill of their stock picks or mutual fund choices is not so good. The idea behind Social Security is not just that old folks should be entitled to comfort regardless of their personal merits. It is that none of us of any age should be obliged to live in a society where minimal dignity and the minimal decencies are denied to any of our fellow citizens at the end of life. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house might be a good admonition to keep in mind when making social policy, but so is. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon this land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Once again, that's a spin on um, George Bush's Social Security scam written by Andrew Hertzberg. um It's coming to be my number one socio-political uh, commentator he has a book out now called "Politics." It goes back to nineteen sixty six I used that for the last uh fundraiser for uh a premium and I recommend it highly It's a great tome of a book, but it's made up of delightful and charming and witty short essays uh the sort of thing you know you put beside your bed and uh I was reading again last night his funny essay on Ronald Reagan called The Child Monarch. Oh uh, and there's so many on um oh yes, the yuppie peril and that sort of thing. But I need a little I need a little charm and a little wit with my political essays. It's difficult to read these um statistical tones and things and Hertzberg makes it um uh, Delightful. Once again, his book is Politics, available in your local bookstore. And this article, the one called Unsocial Insecurity, is the comment section of the Talk of the Town in the New Yorker, dated January 24th and 31st. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday, and we'll raise a fortune for KPFA, and I will have... Yummy premiums for you at that time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can.
0: So divide up those in darkness From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys There's your picture The KPFA Ibda Freedom Radio Project. Flashpoint's KPFA and the Ibda Cultural Center present a benefit fundraiser Thursday, February 10th at 7 p.m. at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. Beginning with a film screening of The Children of Ibda, a documentary about the Palestinian children's dance troupe from the Dehesha refugee camp in the West Bank. Also live music by David Robic, Mo Ali Lesh, and Palestinian hip-hop with The Iron Shake. The Freedom Radio Project is a collaboration between Flashpoints, KPFA, and IBDA, empowering Palestinian youth to express their own creative story and experience through radio. That's Thursday, February 10th at 7 p.m. at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. Tickets are $15. For more information, please call 510-848-6767, extension 241. This event is co sponsored by the Middle East Children's Alliance. The Activist Series at the Berkeley Fellowship presents Carolyn Scar, Ecumenical Peace Institute, co-founder, Iraq Vigil, and interfaith activist, along with Dr. Mark Saper, media public health advocate and co-founder, Retropole. That's Friday, February 25th, 7 p.m. at the Unitarian Universalist Hall, Cedar and Benita, wheelchair accessible, all welcome, donation to benefit UU social justice. Call 510-528-5403.
1: Thank you.